And so growing up as a kid, um, I was, for the most part, a, a good kid that would obey uh, my parents and everything, uh, but there would be moments that you'd have those uh, moments that you uh, did not. Uh, anybody, not everybody's had this, but if you had a good mother, do you know what I'm talking about? A good mother that will sit there and tell you that you're wrong and love you enough to correct you? You have a good mother that will come in there and sit there and say, what are you thinking? Well, there was one of this time uh, where I, I don't even remember what I was in trouble. I was six years old. I don't remember what I was in trouble for. Uh, and my mother was talking to me, and she looked at me, and she said, um, you know what's going to happen now. And I, n- I knew what was going to happen now. And so I looked at my mother, and she goes, so this is what's going to happen. She told me the consequence of, of what was going to take place. And in that moment, uh, for a six-year-old, the logical thing in my mind was to do this, um, run for your life, okay? That was the logical thing that hit. And I don't even know why. It's like I look at my children now who are nine and seven, and I'll look at my son, and he'll sit there, and he'll, he'll hug his sister too tight where she can't breathe. And I'm like going, don't ever do that again. Do you understand? Don't touch your sister like that again. Do you understand? Yes, sir. 30 seconds later, he's grabbing her again. I'm like going, what did you do? I don't know. I'm like, as a six-year-old, I ran in that moment from my mother, and it's, I don't know, but it seemed logical at the time. And so I ran from my mother, and I knew that something was wrong when all of a sudden my mother said, Sean Eric. If your mom uses your middle name, it's bad. And so I decided that maybe I could wait it out, and I stayed farther away from her. And then in that next moment, you know it's really bad when she goes, you come here right now. Once they're talking through their teeth, you're going to meet Jesus, okay? There's no other way around it. Once they're talking through their teeth, and so I realized that all of a sudden I hadn't thought this plan through. I had not thought it through. And the way that our, the way that our house was set up, you had the kitchen, you had the living room, and you had the family room. And so there was two doorways into each one. So it was kind of like a hallway, kind of like a circle. And so I stayed on the far side of everything. And then all of a sudden I heard my mom. And she started. And I heard that stomping. And as she came one way, I could hear. And so I went the opposite way of her. Well, she wouldn't realize that. She turned it and she went. And she came the other way. And so I went back the other way. But that only made it worse, you could guess. And so mom started sounding like one of those trains that's getting ready to start. And she started coming, and I knew this is going to be bad. So I had to formulate a plan very quickly, and I said, this is what I'll do. I'll get mom in the kitchen because the front door's over here. And if I can get to the front door, I can survive on Rice Krispies or something until she calms down. I can do something in that moment. And so I got mom around to this side, and I got her to the kitchen, and she came around, and I saw her. And as I saw her, I bolted for the front door. I bolted for the front door, and I saw it. And as I got to the front door, I hit it. It was one of those locks that you pushed in and kind of twist to lock it. And so I had to pop the lock, and I opened it, and I opened up the door, and there was like light there. And I was like going, freedom. You know, I was like, oh and I was about ready to go on through, and then all of a sudden, it was a chain lock. Y'all remember chain locks? Anybody have a chain lock? Had the chain lock that was still on there, and so I opened it, went chink, and I was like, no! And so I shut the door, and I smacked the chain link off, and I opened it, and the hand came down, went boom, and I don't remember anything else after that, nothing. My mother had a hold of me. I don't remember anything. Have you ever been caught when you've done something wrong? Have you ever been caught red-handed? And somebody has caught you, and you know that you don't have an excuse. At the time that you did it, it made sense, but then all of a sudden you realize when you've been caught, you have made a foolish choice. Have you ever been caught? I want you to go with me this morning. If you have your Bibles, I want you to go with me to John chapter 8. To John chapter 8. 
For some of you, this will be a very familiar story. For others of you, it may be the first time. But I don't care how many times we read the Bible, God's Word is always new. You can always find something out because it is living. It is true. God's Word, I have come to realize this. Um, it is always right, and, uh, and I'm not all the time. But his word is true. We continue to uh, make our lives live by it, conform to it. When it begins to reveal things to us, we begin to say, God, I agree with you. And we begin to alter and change our lives to trust what God says in his word. As we go today to John uh, chapter 8, we begin there and let's read, starting in verse 2 of John chapter 8. And it says this. Now early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him. And he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? Now as we come to this point of looking at it, Jesus has been teaching And as he is teaching, many people have gathered to hear him. He doesn't teach like the scribes, or he doesn't teach like the Pharisees. He teaches of one with authority. He teaches of one that begins to lay out the truth of the law, not just the letter of it and understanding rules, but the very heart of God. And as Jesus has continued uh, to teach and he has continued to share, the people's hearts have been, some of them have been quickened and they they have longed to be around him. But here we have, all of a sudden, the scribes and the Pharisees. The Pharisees who uh, had good intentions to try to take the law that was there and to try to bring it to the common people to find ways uh, to enact those laws in practical ways every day. So they had talked about uh, the ritual washings that the commands of Moses had been in there, but they talked about everybody should, you know, wash before they eat and their, their pitchers and their cups and they should clean all that. Well, that wasn't in the Bible, but it was their way of trying to make it practical for the common people. The only problem is is they had put their traditions in substitutions of God's word. And they had taken people away from God. These people had begun to honor the traditions of what had taken place, but they were not honoring God. And so as the scribes and Pharisees, they brought this woman caught in adultery, and they look at Jesus and they say, what do you say? This is what the law says, but what do you say? What's wrong with this picture? Now, some of you already know this. Most of you have heard some of these points before, but let's just think about it. The first one is usually the one, if I ask this question, the women are the quickest ones to answer this question every single time. And that would be what? Where's the man? Every single time. It's like as soon as we hear that, you hear a woman in the background going, where's the man at? Where's the man at? Where's the man at? Well, the question is this, where is he? Because it says this, if we go back and we look at Deuteronomy 20.10, it says, The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall be put to death. If the Pharisees were going to catch them in the very act, where is the man? The second thing is this. It says that in Deuteronomy 17.6, It says, whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. Now, as these scribes and Pharisees, plural, are bringing and dragging this woman in front of Jesus and everybody else, 
The question that begins to say is that the way that the law had been set up is that it was very stringent, is that there had to be eyewitnesses to the very act. There couldn't be just assumption or accusation. There had to be witnesses. Now, sadly enough, I have been in ministry long enough that I've had to deal with people that have committed adultery. And so I've had at times to be able to talk. But most of the time that that proof that has been brought has either been by text messages or it has been by phone calls or it has been by something that is recorded and something that is dealt with. But I have never caught anyone in the act. Maybe there will be some that have, but I have never done that. And on top of that, it's a whole crew of them. It almost seems like we have a setup here. It almost seems like we have a bunch of peeping Pharisees that have set this up in this moment to be able to catch this woman. Because how do you catch her in the very act unless you have set something up? And the last one is this. The woman should not have been been brought in front of Jesus. If they were truly seeking what the law had wanted, they would have brought her in front of the Sanhedrin. They'd have brought her in front of the ruling group in that moment so that they could deal with justice of what God's Word had said. They bring her before Jesus in front of all these people. Well, why do they do this? It says in verse 6, they said this testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. Testing Jesus. See, they don't even care about this woman. They're just using her. They don't even care that she's broken the law. They're going after Jesus in this moment to begin to see if they can erode some of his power, to erode some of his influence because they are prideful and jealous. They're no longer the top dog. And so they begin in this moment to find ways to plot against him. They think that they have Jesus trapped because if Jesus says, don't stone her, well, it looks like he's violating the law. And did Jesus come to break the law? What's the Bible say that he came to do? He came to fulfill it. He came to fulfill it, not to break it. If he says, no, 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 don't stone her, then it looks, it looks as if he is violating the law of Moses. If Jesus says, stone her, they think that they have him trapped because under Roman occupation at this point in time, the Romans had outlawed the uh, idea of capital punishment being carried out by the Jews. Uh, that's the reason why when you see Jesus uh, that he has to go through, when he is being betrayed and everything, he has to go to all these different things before he finally winds up at the, the end of everything with a person that can accuse him and carry it out. But if Jesus says stone her, then it'll look like he's causing a riot. And the Jews have already seen many riots there, and the Romans have crucified hundreds of people and able to show them you will not subvert Roman rule. And the last one is also this. If Jesus says stone her, he is a person that eats with sinners. He is a person that hangs out with sinners. Can you think about some of the sinners that Jesus has been with? Who has he been with? He's been with Zacchaeus. He went to his house. Zacchaeus was a robber, a thief. He hung out with other sinners. He has been with people that are sinners in the Pharisees' eyes. And if Jesus says, 
stone her, then all of a sudden, all these people that have gathered around Jesus that have found grace, all of a sudden says, you know what? I can't go around him anymore because what's he going to do to me? I mean, I know I've got stuff. What's he going to do to me? They think they have him trapped. Here's the only problem. You can't trap God in flesh. You can't trap God. You can't outsmart him. You can't outthink him. You can only submit yourself and say, you are God and I am not and thy will be done. God, you are God and you are worthy of praise. Anytime you think that you can outsmart God, let me share with you. He may let you get down the road a little bit and then finally he'll sit there and say, you'd like to come back? Would you like to repent now? Because you have made a mess of things by not following me. And thank God for his grace. Amen? Amen. We see this. But Jesus doesn't stand up and start looking at them and saying, you know what? I'm going to rebuttal you and I'm going to give you three points of why I'm going to rebuttal this. You're wrong here. You're wrong here. You're wrong here. You're wrong here. Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't look at him and says, what is wrong with you people? I can't believe you. What are you thinking about? Jesus goes all the way through. And here's what he does. The crazy thing that makes no sense to me is that in the midst of all this, he sits there and he sees them and he goes, I'm like, what kind of response is that? What kind of response? I mean, usually if somebody's coming at me, I'm like going, oh, let's go, big boy. You want to get into it? Let's go into an argument right now. How many of y'all sometimes have that personality? How many sometimes y'all have that personality? Are we being honest? Some of you, if somebody comes at you, you're going to sit there and say, oh, I'll show you right now. You want to pull out scripture? Oh, let's go at it now. Come on. Well, we've totally missed that. Jesus does something amazing. He looked and he bends down. Why does he bend down? Why does he bend down? And the Bible doesn't say. We need to always be very careful of ever putting our assumption when the Scripture doesn't speak. But it's interesting here. Why does he bend down? We don't know. But I'll tell you this. He said something very primary. He is above this pettiness. He is above this moment being able to tell them that this, what they are trying to do, is foolishness. He's not going to get into an argument with them. He is not even going to entertain the idea that somehow that they have a legitimate reason to have this discussion. And so he bends down and he begins to write on the ground. And, and what did he write? What did he write? Everybody wants to know. What did he write? I have no idea. The Bible doesn't say. But it is interesting if we look at Scripture, there is a passage, and there's other passages that you can look at this, but one of them that I've always found very interesting is in Jeremiah 17, 13. It says, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who forsake you shall be ashamed. Those who depart from me shall be written in the earth because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. Now, we don't know what he wrote. We have no idea. But Jesus detaches himself from the whole thing. And this is not even worthy of a discussion at this point. It's not even worthy of what's taking place. But as it goes on in verse 7, it says, So when they continued asking him, so as Jesus bends down, they don't get the response. It would seem as if they may have him on the ropes. What are you going to do, Jesus? What are you going to do about this? He remains silent, so you think that, well, we have you now. Sometimes the people that are silent doesn't mean they're beaten. It means that they're about ready to launch. Do you know what I mean? It's like going, I, my, I, I have family members that I have talked with and that I have shared with, and, and through the years I've realized when I start to share with them, passionate about things that I'm sharing about and just wanting what they're thinking and thinking that I've got a good idea, if some of them get really quiet, I'm like going, oh, I'm going to be blown away because they're about ready to launch into something right now. They're processing. They're thinking through this. These Pharisees think they have Jesus. And so they said, what are you going to do? They continue asking him. 
And he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Jesus, what are you going to do? Jesus, what are you going to do? What are you going to do about this, huh? What are you going to do? If he was without sin among you, cast the first stone. I was just going to finish what I was writing. What kind of response is that? The response from Almighty God, amen? The response in that moment that Jesus gets to the heart of it. Now, when he says this, when he says, he who is without sin among you, this is not saying that he's saying that, uh, listen, nobody can, if you have any sin, you don't have the right to say anything. That's not what he's saying because in the Old Testament, there are laws that begin to say if somebody is caught in the midst of this and there are witnesses, that can be carried out. This is not saying that uh, there there can't be sin. This is a passage, uh, when you look at it, um, if you ever go to Matthew 7, I don't, I don't have that up on the screen, but on Matthew 7, you know, we hear this. It says, judge not that you be judged. And we stop at that verse sometimes. We sit there and say, oh, judge not that you, can be, that you be judged. And so you can't say anything to me and I can't say anything to you. But, but listen to what the rest of the Bible says. It says, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you plank in your own eye, you And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite. First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. It does not say, well, I have sin and you have sin, so we just leave it even. It doesn't say that. It says, check with how you're going to judge somebody, because if you're going to come at them with that same expect the same to be done to you. And at the same point in time, by God Almighty. But in that moment, if you look at it and say, God, forgive me a sinner such as me. I am a sinner. I have blown it. But by your grace, you have changed me, transformed me. I am a son or daughter of the Most High God. But Lord, in this moment, Forgive me of my sins as I look at what's going on, God, as I pull out those things. And God, I look at my brother or sister and I say, I love you enough to call this out. God would not have that in your life. I love you enough in this moment not to be judgmental, but to be a person that comes along beside you and say, how can we go towards Christ together? When Jesus says, you who is without sin, cast the first stone, he catches them very quickly and says this, hey, that's fine. In this situation, if you are complete witnesses, if you've completely done it right, hey, pitch. You go because you're right. If you have no sin in this one, sure, you carry out the law as you've seen it. But it says in verse 9, then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with oldest even to the last. See, when they began to hear Jesus' words, when they began to listen to what he said, all of a sudden it came back, not to the letter of the law, but the heart. See, in that moment, however it was set up, whether they had devised a trap or somehow, but something was not right, when they saw that woman... They should have immediately cried out and warned her, what are you doing? What are you doing? This will bring a curse upon you. What are you doing? Please run away from this. This is not right for you. It will curse many people. Run, run, run. But they didn't. 
They cared more about their devious plot than they did about the soul of that woman. They cared more about how they were going to prove a point. They used that woman and they allowed sin instead of caring for their sister and lovingly calling it out. Now, they can't stop her. I mean, we can't, you can't stop somebody from doing sin, right? I mean, it's not, and it's not our responsibility. It is our responsibility to lovingly encourage, to warn, to call people back to Christ. This in your life is not what God would have. It's not what it would have, but they didn't do that. They didn't do it. And so in all honesty, when it's held down to it, their sin is worse than hers because of the intention. They're held more accountable. And so then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? I can't imagine what she went through. I can't imagine what she was experiencing. Although there's moments in my life where I have failed God. There's moments in my life that God has called me to things and I have stiff-necked and hard-hearted said no. And I'm embarrassed to say it, but it's true. There's moments that God, by his, by his moment of sharing his word, of calling me to follow him, I have resolutely at times said no. I don't want to take the cost. I don't want to go through the pain. I don't want to deal with the suffering. I don't want to give up the comfort. I don't want to give up what I want. And then there's other moments that I have sinned. Not just saying no to God, but knowing what he already wanted and doing the opposite. And in that moment, we see this woman because she is not innocent. Even if this is a setup the way it could be in the worst case scenario, even if it's a setup, she still could have run away. She still in that moment could have said, I will not be a part of this. I will not dishonor the Lord. She's still guilty. Even if it's 99% their fault, she's 1%, it's still her fault. Have you noticed how we always sometimes blame other people for choices that have happened? We sit there and they say, well, because of what happened in my life, that's why I'm bitter. Because of what they did, that's why I'm angry. Because of what, what they did, that's why I'm in this mess. Let me share with you. It may have been what started it, but every single one of us have a choice to go before God and say, Lord, but from this point on, I am yours to follow you. Nobody can make me sin. That is my sinful choice. I can be put in horrible circumstances. I can be placed in the worst of circumstances, but... It's me that makes the choice towards God to either rely upon him and surrender myself or to stand resolutely in my own strength and say, I'll do it myself. This woman, as she stands there, she still sins. She's not innocent. And Jesus says, has no one condemned you? And she said, 
no one, Lord. I can think in myself, but looking at Jesus in that moment, say, no one else has condemned me, but will, will you? Jesus, what will you think of me now? What will you think of me in this moment? As I go through your word, as I sit there in that moment and I read something and I have great conviction and I realize that I have utterly failed. But will you condemn? Will you condemn? And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Now, it's interesting as we go back and we look at this passage because uh, there's some interesting things within this passage within the early church. Uh, there are some commentators, either as we get later, that are saying uh, this passage, uh, they were uncomfortable with this passage. They were uncomfortable with this. Uh, some of them would uh, say in this moment, they would say, he is way too lenient. Jesus is way... You see of the Old Testament and the New Testament talking about uh, sexual impurity. And Jesus just says, neither do I. Go and sin no more. And they're like, how did you let her go off? And so there would be people, of commentators that are so uh, bothered by this text. But I think they missed something. Because Jesus is not letting her off scot clean. The thing that we catch here is this. When we go back to it, first she was caught in sin. We know John 3.16 in that passage. But John 3.17 says this, For the purpose of Jesus Christ, for God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Why did Jesus not come to condemn the world? Because we were already condemned. We were already condemned by our sins, by our actions, our attitudes, our words. We were already condemned. Jesus was not coming in to sit there and say, See, I told you so. Jesus was coming in to say, you have no hope under what you are doing. You have no hope. But there is life through Jesus. He does not come to condemn because that's not what his purpose was in this moment. Now, he rebuked sin. He called it out sin. And that's what he does to her here. Because he tells her, go and sin no more. Well, what does he mean by go and sin no more? Is he telling her, if you ever sin again, you've messed up. There's even some people that believe that once they're saved, they never sin anymore. They never have a problem. Only First John calls that out and says, he who says he has no sin deceives himself, and the truth is not within him. That's what it says. What Jesus is calling in this moment is saying this. The sin that you are in the midst of right now, stop and continue on and go forth in that. It says, stop what you're doing. The way that it is written says, what you are doing, stop and continue to go forward. Now, is that even possible? Is it possible in that moment to look at certain sins in our life and begin to say, oh God, you have called it out and I know it? Is it possible? Church, we will always deal with sin on the rest of this earth, right? We will always deal with sin. But let me share with you, we have a bad definition at times of grace that thinks that Jesus died so we can live however we want. That's not the purpose of grace. Grace was to give us something that we didn't deserve, to give us abundant and new life so that we would live differently than we ever have and only by the grace of Jesus. Listen to what it says here. First Corinthians, or Romans 6, 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Stopping the action, continuing in a new way of life. Listen to 1 Corinthians 
10.13, no temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. What did he say the sin was? What is it, what is it to man? Common. The sins that mankind deal with are not super crazy. You can't get a free. You're bound. There's no hope. You're stuck. They're common to man. Every sin that's out there is common to man. And listen to what he says. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Jesus begins to tell us something. Jesus Christ, God, the God-man, God in flesh, came upon this earth and he lived a life without sin. Amen? No sin. Action, attitude, thought, everything about Jesus was totally dependent upon the Father and to do his Father's will. That's what it says. And when he was crucified upon that cross, the only thing that could be done, we are not saved by going to church. Amen? We go to church because God commands it. We want to be obedient to him. This is how we learn to live out our faith because it's hard to learn how to forgive if you're not around other people that offend or that you offend. When we catch it that all of a sudden we're going to rub each other wrong, we're going to hurt one another, we're going to say something we wish you never had, and in that moment, because I have received Jesus Christ, the blood has been to wash away my sins in that moment because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that power as we're going to get to this, that lives within me, I am able to look at somebody and say, I choose to forgive you, not because I feel like it, but because Jesus has forgiven me. I love because he's loved me. I can look at you and I want to see Jesus and not just you. We catch in that moment where we have struggled with sin, but it's common and there is no temptation that we cannot go to Jesus and say, Oh God, if I need to flee from wherever I need to, let me flee from it and flee to you. Let me do this. It is not by our power, but he who lives in us. Listen to Romans 8, 9, and 11. As we begin to, to, to come down, as we begin to wrap up. There is a difference between us, between flesh and spirit, if you are in Christ. If you are in Christ, the Bible tells us that you have been given a new nature. But you got this old flesh that's still messed up. Amen? I have been given a new nature in Christ. Listen to what it says here. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. Whose righteousness? His righteousness. Not mine. His righteousness is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. See, I am not strong enough to follow God's will under my own strength. I can't do it. When I try to live out Christianity based on what I'm going to do, I fail every time. The only way I can follow and be what Christ calls me to be is to abide in him, to surrender to him constantly, to lay my life down and say, God, it is not. How did you get saved? Did you get saved by yourself or by Jesus? How do you continue on in the faith, by your strength or by his? The same way you got in is the same way you go on. It is by faith. It is by trusting. It is by surrendering. It is by coming. And it begins to say this. The nature, the very spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. This is the craziest thing. 
the very power that raised Jesus from the dead lives in me. If you're in Christ, it lives in me. That raised Jesus from the dead. That means this. If he can do amazing things because God raised him from the dead, what does that mean about my life? What excuses are you giving God and saying, oh, God, I just can't get past that. It's just, I'm just, I'm just a messed up old sinner, and I just, you know, it's just, it's, thank you for saving me, but I'm just stuck this way, and I, there's no, there is no redemptive power life in that. There's no redemptive power life in that. The power of the life is this. I was a sinner. I struggle with sin, but I'm now a saint, not because of what I do, but because of who he says I am. I am a son of Jesus Christ. I have been saved by the power of the blood. I've been saved by the grace of God, and I am different, not because of what I do, but what he does within me. Not only does Christ not condemn, but he offers us forgiveness. He makes us new and gives us his power to follow after him. That is what it means to be caught by grace. If you want to be caught today, you don't want to be caught by the people that point their finger and condemn. You want to be caught by a God who grabs a hold of you and says, this is not what I've called you to. I have called you to life. I've called you to abundant life. And that abundant life comes as you submit yourself to me. There are some of you today you may not have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I'm going to share with you right now, that is the first place that you start. The first place that you start is recognizing I am a sinner. I have been caught by God. I know that I'm a sinner, and I need a Savior. You need Jesus to come into your life and to begin to say, Jesus, however you pray it, however you say it, but it is this, Jesus, I need you. I'm a sinner. I believe in your death. I believe in your resurrection. I need your forgiveness. Come into my life and change me, transform me. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, that's where you need to start today. That's where you need to start. It's the power of Jesus, the relationship that he gives. There are some of you here today that if anybody knew about your private life, they'd be mortified, and you're mortified by it. And you believe somewhere in the midst of everything that there are things that are going on in your life that you've begun to say, you know what, I keep saying I'm sorry, and that's the best I can do. God doesn't want your sorry. He wants your faith. He wants your faith to be able to say this, God, not only am I sorry, but I believe this. You have the power to transform me to make me look more and more like you. He wants you to practice in that moment the trust that he has come to change and transform you from who you have been into his image. Is that not what I read in the Bible? What about you? There is nothing that has a hold of us that God cannot break. That's what he tells us. Some of you have family members. They may be caught in stuff. And there's times where it has worn on you, and all of a sudden you've been like going, I don't know if they'll ever get out of this. I don't know if they'll ever get past this. It seems like they, they never can get past this. And at times you feel like your prayers are hitting a ceiling, and they're not going anywhere. Let me share with you now, the devil is a liar. He is good about stealing hope. He is good about lying. He is good about telling there is no hope in this, and you're not doing anything, and you might as well give up hope. And today you may need to look at Jesus and say, God, renew my faith once more to begin to say this. You, God, are not a liar. You speak the truth. And, Lord, I, will put, I come to you yet again to begin to work in this situation. God, I will never give up hope until I am to be with you, and then I will be with hope. His name is Jesus. Do you know him this morning? Have you put your faith in him? Has life beaten you down to an extent where you've lost the joy? 
Where are you with the one who has caught you? Will you let Jesus catch you to bring hope, to bring grace, to bring truth, to bring love, to begin to remind you, you are a child of God if you are in Christ. And if you are not in Christ, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. You need Jesus now. Not by what I say, but by what he tells us in his word. Let us pray. Father, we come before you today. And Lord, we praise you for your goodness. And Lord, I thank you that many times as I read through your word, Father, I thank you that you convict. You continue to drive home, Lord, that it is not by what I do, but it is by what you have done by me submitting to you, by putting faith within you. Lord, of surrendering myself to you. Father, I pray today again that you would have your way. You are speaking. Let us respond to you and to the calling that you have upon our life. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray.